I'd like to begin the sermon today by reading parts uh, from two sonnets. You are probably familiar with Shakespeare's sonnet number 18, although you may not recall it by the title. It is considered his ultimate and most famous love poem. It's considered by many the most beautiful verse, verses written in the English language. It begins as follows. Shakespeare's Sonnet 18, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. I'm sure you're familiar with those lines. It concludes by the following couplet. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this and this gives life to thee. Speaking of the love that one has for another that Shakespeare is writing of. It's a good sonnet. I enjoy more Elizabeth Barrett Browning's sonnet number 43. I'll read the entire sonnet. It's shorter. You're familiar with this one as well. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need. By sun and candlelight, I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seemed to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears, of all my life, and if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Sonnet number 43. Now, of course, we're not here today to read poetry, but these sonnets introduce the topic that I would like to discuss today, and that is the topic of love, and more precisely, godly love. Is this an important topic for us? We know it is. Let's turn to Matthew 22 to introduce the sermon. Matthew 22. How important is it for us, brethren, to understand godly love, to apply principles of godly love between ourselves, amongst each other, towards God's law, towards God? How important is this topic? Jesus Christ in Matthew 22 helps me introduce the topic today, Matthew 22, verse 37. He's asked by the Pharisees, particularly the young lawyer who asks him a test question, what is the great commandment in the law? Matthew 22, verse 36. What is it that we in God's church, the faithful, should put up on the highest pedestal as being the most important thing for us to do to study, to strive for, to obey, to talk about. What is the most important thing? And what did Christ respond with? Was it obscure prophetic understanding? Prophecy is important. Was it something else? What was it that Christ replied with? We know his reply. Jesus said to him in verse 36, 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The Ten Commandments, the statutes, the testimonies, the prophecies are all built upon these two principles, as we'll see throughout the course of the sermon today. The title of the sermon today, brethren, is The First and Greatest Commandment. The First and Greatest Commandment. The Bible discusses love throughout the Old and New Testaments, of course. I'd like to review six words that the Bible uses to express the concept of love and introduce them and define them before we get too far into the sermon. It will help us as we go through the sermon. There are three words in the Old Testament that are often used to express love or merciful love. The first is Ahab, A-H-A-B, of course, a Hebrew word. It's used over 200 times. It denotes divine love as well as human love, A-H-A-B. This word can describe the love between friends that friends have for each other, somewhat like agape love, maybe more like filio. It can define or describe a love of things as well, like a love toward wisdom. Let's not turn there, but Proverbs 4, verse 6. We should have a love for wisdom. That's Ahab love. It's a divine or human love of something. We can have a love of food. Genesis 27, verse 4. Uh, we can love agriculture. We can love God's law. We can love one another. The second Hebrew word for love is pronounced dode or dode. And it's spelled, of course, transliterated into the English D-O-W-D. And it's a sexual term. It's typically physical sexual love found in different parts of the Bible, but mostly throughout Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon 1, verse 2, uses that word there, D-O-W-D. The third word that's used often throughout the Old Testament, a very important word, and we'll come back to this in the sermon, the course of the sermon, is hesed, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. Now, hesed is a very important word, and it is often translated as mercy in the King James or New King James. And uh, that's a little bit of a um, lacking translation. The RSV translates it as steadfast love, not exactly precise either. The NASB translates it as loving kindness or sometimes love. And the NIV translates it often as just simply love, said. Now, Hesed is much more than all of the above. Hesed is a royal covenantal love. It's a purposeful love. It includes God's royal covenantal love toward us. It's a contractual covenantal love. It's undeserved. And it is often unrequited. It's often not requited. It's often one way from God to us, sadly. Hesed. Similar to agape in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are three words. And again, it's important to write these down because we'll come back to these words later throughout the sermon. But in the New Testament, there's, of course, agape love. 
And that's the most common New Testament word for love. And it is unmerited self-giving love. God is described as agape. It's unmerited self-giving. It's similar to said. Of course, filio, very important word. Filio is human affection, affectionate love, characteristic of, of friendship, one for another. It's warm. It's warmth. It's kind. It's compassionate. And then there's, of course, eros in the New Testament. Uh, it's a possessive love. It's not just a sexual love. It's a possessive love. It's typically a physical love as well. So these are the six words primarily used. There are derivatives of them, of course, throughout the Bible. The Bible talks a lot about love. So what I'd like to do is begin the sermon by giving us five biblical points about what Jesus Christ said is the first and greatest commandment upon which the law, the prophets, the testimony all stands. Now, there are 20 other points that we could cover. But these are five that I thought would be helpful for us. Hopefully today, I know they're important and helpful for me to meditate on. <clears throat> the first point that I would like to discuss is that we are, in fact, instructed throughout the Bible in how to love God and how to love one another. God does provide instruction for us. God is the lawgiver, as we know. And so God does not ask us or expect us to do something that he does not equip us or instruct us to be able to do. And that's an important point for us as Christians to understand. He does not ask us to do something that he does not equip and instruct us in how to accomplish that instruction. The Sabbath is a commanded rest. It is a test commandment. And he will provide a way for us to honor and keep the Sabbath holy. That's just the way God works. So God does give us instruction throughout the Bible regarding how to love one another and how to love him. Let's turn to 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Here Peter is writing an epistle to the scattered brethren uh, throughout Asia and Galatia and uh, other areas to the scattered church, the scattered ecclesia. 1 Peter 1. And verse 22, he writes, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. So we are inherently without God's Holy Spirit in us. We are carnal natured, carnally minded. You know, the heart is wicked and desperate. But with the Holy Spirit in us and through obedience and through Bible study and through faith, which comes by hearing, we purify our souls in obeying the truth. So we here in God's church and around the world, we are in the process of purifying our souls. And how do we do that? Through obeying the truth. We don't purify our souls through disobedience. We purify our souls through obedience, through the spirit. You see, we must have God's Holy Spirit in us, working with us to help us. We cannot keep the law without the Holy Spirit in us, but we still must put forth our effort. We still must do our part. Notice that we have purified our souls in obeying the truth through the Holy Spirit in sincere love, unhypocritical love, in sincere love of the brethren. And so love one another fervently with a pure heart. We're instructed throughout the Bible in how to love God and how to love one another, and that it's important to love God and to love each other. 
This was, of course, Peter talking or writing to the scattered brethren. Paul discusses the same point. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, a famous passage, but I would like to bring some points uh, out that I think are important at the end of the age. We do live in the end of the age, and we know that the love of many is waxing cold. We see that, unfortunately. It's been happening for decades, and it will increase. 1 Timothy 1, Paul writes in verse 5, how important it is to love each other, that if we don't practice love, we'll stray. Notice here, verse 5, 1 Timothy 1. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere, or again, unhypocritical faith. As Jesus Christ responded to the Pharisees, as Peter wrote to the brethren, Paul also writes that the purpose of the commandments, the, the, the law, God's law, it's expressed, it's an expression of love and, and it, it is built upon love. God is love, his law expresses love. The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. How, how again do we become pure of conscience through obeying God's law? Verse 6, from which some having strayed, what did they stray from? You see, first they strayed from love. First they strayed from love. Then they turned aside to idle talk. You see, the cause of straying is when we cease to love God's law, fear God's law, love one another. And we're going to, at the end of the sermon, go through application points. Five points regarding how we can test ourselves and apply these principles. But Paul is bringing out, brethren, that when we stray from love, when we don't practice love, when we don't understand how important it is to love God, love his commandments, love his law, love one another, love the work, the result is straying from the faith. People who say that they've you know, decided that they have a new understanding or they must leave the church for some reason or whatever, Paul says that, that is the cause of this is a leaving of the original love that we are supposed to be developing and practicing. So then the consequences, they stray, turn aside to idle talk. A lot of idle talk out there today. A lot of idle talk. There's always been idle talk. Of course, with modern technology, it's just easier to send idle talk all around the world in seconds to thousands and tens of thousands of people. A lot of idle talk. Desiring to be teachers. But see, what was the cause of all these problems? It was straying from that sincere love. So then they desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Brethren, we are instructed throughout the Bible... That it is important to love God, to love each other. We're instructed throughout the Bible how to love God and how to love each other. And we'll go through those, some of those principles today. But I'd like to mention toward the beginning of the sermon a few points, a few facts. Love brings people together. Love does not divide. Love brings people together. When you see a family and an extended family that gets together uh, for Friday night dinners, which is a great a tradition or for Thanksgiving, possibly. When you see a family that comes together, typically that family comes together because why? Do they come together because they just hate each other and they, they can't stand each other? Or do they come together because they love each other? 
Love brings people together. And there is illogical nonsense out there that's floated around for decades that, you know, and it goes as follows. The church is a spiritual body. It's not a corporation. And thus, we can all be kind of independent. And we just really love God individually and independently. Well, that's that's illogical. If we love God, we'll love each other. And if we love God and love each other, we'll come together and we'll come together for a purpose, as we'll see later in the sermon. But love brings people together. Love does not fragment. Love does not divide. Love is also submission under God. Love is submission under God. And we'll talk about that towards the end of the sermon. But love is to submit. To love God, to love each other, is to submit to God's law and to God's will. And that, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation makes that point clear. And we'll come back to that specifically at the end of the sermon. Unforgiveness is contrary to love. Unforgiveness is contrary to love. Division is contrary to love. A lack of zeal for the work is contrary to love. Pride is contrary to love. Pride is contrary to love. Just some points, some thoughts to put in our mind as we develop uh, the topic throughout the rest of the sermon. Biblical point number two. Biblical point number two. Love of God's law and love for one another is key to being Philadelphian. Love of God's law and love of one another is key to being Philadelphian. What was the second of the New Testament words that we reviewed? And again, you're familiar with this. Filio. And what does filio mean? Filio means affectionate, brotherly love. It's characteristic of friendship. It's warm love. It's also merited love. Agape love is unmerited. It does not need to be merited. It's like Hesed from the Old Testament. Agape love is similar to Hesed. Contractual, often unreciprocated, and unmerited. In other words, God decides to love his people or his, those he's, he's called, and whether those people Requite whether those people love him back, obey him. God has a contractual love and pity towards those people. Filio is merited love. It's, it's more friendship, but it's merited. Let's turn to Revelation 3, verse 7. Of course, here we see the church that's known as the Church of Philadelphia or the Church at Philadelphia. And as we know, there are seven eras that have come down through history. And as Mr. Armstrong, Dr. Meredith has mentioned a number of times, these characteristics, brethren, have been extant throughout the ages. And we understand that there are characteristics of Sardis uh, that we might, might have to, to struggle with to overcome, uh, that we might be you know, fighting ourselves. Uh, there might be characteristics of Laodicea that we have to deal with. There are some, also some, some positives about Sardis. There's some Positives about Laodicea. Of course, Laodicea is told to repent and they're lukewarm. There's some characteristics about Philadelphia, aren't there? So we know that there are characteristics throughout the ages. um, But we also know that at the end of the age, Philadelphia will be one of the end time 
uh, bodies, and it will be doing God's work. And what are the characteristics that we see here in verse 7? Revelation 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Now, again, Philly, Philios, brotherly love, merited brotherly love, warm love, warmth and love and affection towards one another. These things says he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, which is a reference, as we know, to government. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, which is a reference to preaching the gospel and going through those open doors. I know your work. See how I have set before you an open door. And no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. I've kept my word, have not denied my name. Have not denied the name of Christ. Did not say, no, he's not my friend. No, I don't know him. You see, Philio, Philio, is he worthy of our love? Are we worthy of each other's love? The Philadelphian church will love Christ with philia. And he's worthy of that love. We'll love one another with brotherly love, with warm love. And again, love does not bring division. Love does not get offended. Love does not give up. Love is love for when we love uh, properly, God, in a godly way, we love each other and we love God's law and we're focused on what's important to God, which is going through that open door. So we see that love is important. It's core. It's part of being a Philadelphian Christian. It's part of being a good Christian. But we do sometimes see a lack of love, don't we? And we sometimes see a letting down, maybe a lack of love for God's law, maybe a lack of love of God's holy days, maybe a lack of love for each other. Maybe a lack of love that manifests itself in a lack of being willing to forgive when we're offended. Maybe a lack of love for doing the work. Let's turn to John chapter 4. What are Philadelphians to be about doing? They're to be about the work of God. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you enjoy a nice meal, a nice steak? I enjoyed the... Steaks we had at the the uh, anniversary weekend. They were very, very wonderful. I enjoyed that meal with with friends and family. You know, that was good food, wasn't it? God created us to like good food. What did Jesus Christ say our food should be? We know the answer. John four, verse thirty one, John four, verse thirty one. His disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus Christ replied. What Jesus Christ was about doing, what he was committed to doing, what he loved, what he looked forward to, was to do the will of him who sent him and to finish God's work. Did Jesus Christ enjoy uh, having fish or, or steak or bread and olive oil and maybe garlic, you know, dipping some bread and some olive oil and garlic with his disciples? I'm sure he enjoyed that. The pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus in the Old Testament, he, he ate with his friend Abraham, didn't he? 
There's nothing wrong with a good meal. But what did Jesus Christ love the most? To do the work. Do we love the work? Is that our love? I believe it is. I believe that's one reason we're here. To support the work of the living God. I believe that's why we don't participate or allow our kids to participate in Friday evening high school sports activities because we put God before the world. I believe that's why we've come out of the world and we don't participate in Christmas dinner with our relatives anymore, even though maybe some of our relatives don't understand why we can't be with them on Christmas. Because we've chose, chosen to love God and love the work and love the truth more than the world. And I believe that's why we're here. Jesus Christ's love was to do the work, to finish the work. That should be ours as well. <clears throat> so point number two is that a love of God's law, a love of the truth, is key to being Philadelphian. And part of being a Philadelphian is to be about the work of God. Biblical point number three. What kind of love does God have for us? We've seen that we're given instruction in the, in the Bible regarding how to love each other, love God, love the truth. We've seen that love is part of the characteristic of being a Philadelphian. But let's talk for a moment about God, Elohim, the creator of the universe. Who is he? Who is God? How does he express love? What type of love does God express? Is it filio? Is it agape? Is it all of the above? Let's turn to 1 John verse 4. 1 John 4. A memory scripture, 1 John 4. Not only does God give us instruction about how to love his, him, love his law, and love each other, and we will have some practical application points at the end of the sermon, five points. But God is love. God's very nature is love. And we are to be growing to emulate God. So 1 John 4, verse 8, which, of course, I know we're familiar with, it reads as follows. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Now, people will read that and they'll feel good about it. But how deeply do we understand 1 John 4, 8? Thayer's lexicon, which you might be familiar with, it notes that regarding 1 John 4, 8, God is holy love, entirely love. That is entirely what he is. His very nature is summed up in love. That is what he is. And what word did God inspire John to use here? Agape love, unmerited, self-giving. You see, we don't merit God's love. We don't deserve God's love. We haven't earned God's love. No amount of commandment keeping can allow us to earn God's love. God if he has called you, then he wants to enter into a relationship with you. You have to do your part, repentance, baptism, growing, prayer, fasting, Bible study, keeping God's commandments, obeying God's law. But no amount of that 
obligates God to love us. It's unrequited, unmerited, self-giving, agape love. Since we're in 1 John 4, let's drop down to verse 16. And we know and believed the love that God has for us. God is agape love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. It's a very powerful principle to understand. As we go through our Christian journey, we need to be consciously and daily asking God to help us to grow, to express his nature toward others, to express his nature toward him, that we express his nature toward others, that we express his nature toward him. Who lives in us? Jesus Christ. How do we love God? Through Jesus Christ living in us. In the Old Testament, God's nature of love is expressed in many scriptures. I'll give you three or four just to note. We won't turn to them and then we'll turn just to one. If you'd like to check these later, God's love toward his people is expressed throughout the entire Bible. But Deuteronomy 10:18, Deuteronomy 10:18 is a important verse. Isaiah 43, verse 4 is another, I believe, very powerful expression of God's love toward people, his love toward us. Isaiah 43, verse 4. Also, Isaiah 63, verse 9. Isaiah 63, verse 9. Hosea 14, 4 is another verse you may want to jot down. Let's turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, verse 45. Psalm 106, verse 45. Here we see an expression of God's character, God's nature. Of course, we see his love expressed here. Psalm 106, verse 45. We have time. Let's begin in verse 40. It's a long psalm. Psalm 106, verse 40, therefore, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people. You see, his people did not deserve his love. Thankfully, God has also Hased love. It's not just, you know, Eros or or, um, you know, one of the other types of love. It's it's a covenantal Hased love here that's expressed. First John, I'm sorry, Psalm 106, verse 40, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people so that he abhorred. His own inheritance. He, he abhorred them. You know, they, they were so sinful, so vile. Do we ever feel like we've fallen short? As we begin to examine ourselves, especially before the spring Holy Day season, do we ever realize how short we come? You know, we fall short. I don't believe that hopefully God abhors us like, like what he's referring to here regarding ancient Israel. They'd gone off into just unabandoned uh, idolatry. So anyways, verse 41, he gave them into the hand of the Gentiles and those who hated them ruled over them. This will happen to modern Israel in the coming years. God's mind, God's pattern, the way God deals with Israel, it, it, it hasn't changed. It doesn't change. This will happen again. And this is a historic psalm, but there are prophetic lessons. 
Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled against him by their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. And you know the stories. You know, Israel would, would be chastised by the local uh, nations, and, and, and then God would deliver them, and then they would fall back into their, their sins. Verse 44, nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry and for the sake and for their sake, he remembered his covenant. And here we see this clue. He remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his has said his has said his tender mercies, his multitude of mercies. God loved ancient Israel despite their sins. God would prefer us to not sin. But God's love is deep, brethren. He forgives. He's patient. He's kind. Are we? Do we? In the New Testament, there are many references to God and Christ's love toward us. Romans 8, 35 is one I'd like to turn to. Romans 8, 35. Let's turn there. Romans 8, 35. We were just reading in Psalm 106, verse 45, that God abhorred ancient Israel because they were, were so <clears throat> wicked. They became so wicked. But did he abandon them Forever. No, he did not. He remembered his covenantal love, has said, his tender mercifuls, tender mercies. He pitied them. Do we see that expressed in the New Testament as well? Romans 8 35. What do we see here? What type of love? Romans 8 verse 35. Who shall separate us? We are modern Israel. God's called out, God's church. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Shall any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? In the Old Testament, that Hebrew word was a said. Could anything separate ancient Israel from God's has said his Covenantal love, that unmerited love, that binding relationship that he entered into, that covenantal love that he loved for his people. Could anything separate them? The Philistines came through and burned their crops. The Philistines came through again and slaughtered hundreds. Eventually, of course, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. But God was merciful and pitied them. Here in the New Testament... Can anything separate us from God's agape love? This word here is agape. It is his unmerited, undeserved love for us. Now, there is something that can separate us, and that is sin. And who is the cause of sin? Well, Satan shares his blame, but we can separate ourselves from God's love. If we practice sin and don't repent and eventually commit the unpardonable sin where we become hardened and just walk away from God. So we can 
But brethren, can famine separate us from his agape love? Can war separate us from his agape love? Tribulation, persecution, distress. What about when we have persecution in the coming years? Can that separate us from his agape love? None of these things can. God's love for his people, God's love for you is deep. Very deep. Can we express that love back to God? Can we express that love toward one another? Many other New Testament references to God's love. I'll just give a couple because we're going to go through some of these verses in the remainder of the sermon. But John 17, verse 32 might be a, a verse you'd like to look at, look at later. Ephesians 6, verse 23. Ephesians 6, verse 23. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16. Of course, there are many, many others. So what kind of love does God have for us? Point three, it is deep. It is unmerited. It is covenantal. It is profound. It is forgiving. Biblical point number four. Biblical point number four. It is important for us to Live according to God's law. Those who love God keep his law. Those who love God obey his law. Point number four. Let's turn back to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5 verse 2. Begin in verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever believes that Jesus, that man who lived 2,000 years ago, who was begotten by God of a virgin, who was God in the flesh, who was the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Logos, who had pre-existed forever, who was the creator of all things, all was created through Christ. Whoever believes that that power, that God, that part of the Elohim Godhead became Jesus, became that baby that became a child that grew up to be a man that lived perfectly, that was taken unjustly, that was beaten, that was sacrificed, crucified, that died, that was raised again, that ascended to heaven to return to God's right hand, who is our intercessor, our high priest, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God or begotten of God. And everyone who loves him, who beget, who beget God, the Father, the God of the Old Testament, as, as the general Christian world would look at it. You know, Jesus Christ and God were one. And really, more often than not, it's Jesus Christ who was the Old Testament personality that we read about. But the Father begot the Son. So whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, and everyone who loves him who beget, anyone who loves the Father, loves, who, loves him who is begotten of him, loves the Son. By this we know that we love the children of God. By this 
If we love the Father and we love the Son, then we will love each other, verse 2. And how do we express that love of the Father, the Son, and each other? Through keeping the commandments, verse 2. For this is the love of God. This is God's love in us, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. God's commandments are not burdensome. And again, as Jesus Christ spoke, and as is recorded in Matthew 22, verse 38, 39, 40, the first and greatest commandment and the second is like unto it, love God, love your neighbor. Upon this is built God's entire system, the entire law, the prophets, the testimony, everything. We must live according to God's law, brethren. If we're Christian, if we're Philadelphian especially, then we will keep God's law. We will love one another. We will show God our love for him by obeying his law. There's just no sense in the argument that you hear in the general mainstream Christian world that you don't have to keep God's law. There's just no logic to that. That's how we show God our love to him. I won't belabor the point because you understand it. But just as a brief illustration, we know that a law of the land is not to go out and murder someone. And no one in their right mind would think that somebody who runs around and commits murder is showing love to those people whom he murdered. But this doesn't make any sense. To break God's laws, which are love, which give us protection, which help us have a happy society and a happy marriage, that's a good thing. And when we obey God's law, we show God that we love him. I know we understand that. So biblical point number four was simply that to love God, to show our love to him, we must keep his law. Biblical point number five. Biblical point number five. We must be about doing our father's business. We talked about this briefly already, but I'd like to make this its own point. If we love God, we'll be about his business. We'll be doing the work of God. Let's turn to Luke 12, verse 43. Luke 12, verse 43. And brethren, we know that there are many ways that we can contribute to the work of God. The most powerful thing we can do is pray. Live a righteous life. A life that God looks at and takes joy in, takes pleasure in. So that we can draw close to him. And then pray for the success of the work. Pray that the gospel will go out powerfully to the whole world. Pray that God would inspire his ministers to give good sermons. That he would inspire the telecast presenters to give very inspired telecasts. That he would add to the church. That he would provide open doors. Your prayers, brethren, can be the most powerful most profound benefit to the work beyond any other thing on this earth. We know God can raise up rocks. We know God can bring in, you know, 
ten millionaires if he wants. We know God can open doors for us. We know he will open doors for us. But God can't make us have good character. God can't make us love his law. God can't make us keep his law. God can't make us get down on our knees and lovingly and passionately pray for the work and for each other. It's not how God works. God wants us to use our own character. He wants us to decide to put him first, to consciously decide to put the work first. We must be about our father's business. Luke 12, verse 43. Luke 12, 43. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And we know the rest of the parable that God will make or that master will make that servant ruler over all that he has. But if we say my master is delaying his coming and we begin to beat our fellow servants, you see how a passion and a focus on Christ's return, you see how a, an understanding of the importance of preaching the gospel that's connected to love? An understanding of the work, an understanding of the Great Commission, an understanding that we have a job to do is connected to loving one another. How is that so? How is that so? It's just a biblical law. When we say our master delays is coming, when we say the work is not that important, when we say, well, we're just all, you know, ecclesia, we're just all God's saints, we're just all a spiritual organism and we're going to cease fellowshipping with each other. We're going to cease tithing to where God's work is being done. We're going to cease praying for where God's work is being done. We're going to not really be committed. We're going to deny Christ's name. Because that's what we're doing. Effectively, we're denying his name. Because where is Christ? Christ is in you and you and you and you and me. He's in his church. But when we say we don't need that, we're being foolish. We're being illogical. And so people fall into that trap. And they fall into this trap that the work does not need to be done or Christ is delaying his coming. And then what happens? Again, the consequence, cause and effect. The consequence, they begin beating their fellow servants. We like to sometimes beat our fellow servants on the Internet, don't we? on Facebook, via email, on the telephone. We should not do that. Proverbs 29.18. Proverbs 29.18 makes a just incredible, profound point. And I'm probably just a little bit slow, but it was a few years ago. Uh, I was in Texas, and I was preparing a sermon, and, and it was about the Great Commission. And... I think I was just reading through Proverbs, just, uh, you know, daily Proverbs, Bible study. And, and, and this became clear to me. And so, again, uh, probably most of you have understood this for a while. But I'll confess, I didn't quite get this uh, till uh, I don't know when it was, but, you know, maybe seven, six, seven years ago. Proverbs 29, 18. I've read it many times, but it became clear to me a few years ago. Proverbs 29, 18. 
Is there a connection between the work and love? Is there a connection between being excited about preaching the gospel and loving each other and being committed to, to one another? Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no revelation, and that is prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. The people para, P-A-R-A. And this is the same word that was used in Exodus 32:25, when Israel, when Moses was up in the mountain and Israel started uh, sinning and constructed the golden calf and, you know, got into that terrible sin. And they were committing idolatry. They were getting into fornication as well and adultery. They were profaning God's law, profaning the holy camp. But why did they do that? Why did they para, P-A-R-A, in Exodus 32, verse 25? They got their eye off of God, their eye off of Moses, who was God's representative at that time. They thought Moses was you know, lost in the mountain. And so they, they put their eyes on the physical and they remembered what they had back in ancient e- in Egypt, which were these golden idols. And so they went into that idolatry, that vile wickedness. They went back into that. They parred. Why did they do that? Because they cast off restraint as a result of losing that prophetic vision where there is no vision, no revelation, no prophetic vision. The people cast off restraint. They lost sight of Moses and they lost sight of God and they went into sin. And we saw, brethren, in the New Testament, we saw that Luke 12, 43, we were just there. When people say the Lord delays his coming, then what do they do? They start beating their fellow servants. They cast off restraint. There's a connection, brethren. It's a real blessing, but there's a connection. Philadelphians are very, very blessed. Very blessed. If we are Philadelphian. And we understand that not everybody in this congregation is necessarily Philadelphian. We understand that. We're not saying that we're, you know, exclusively it. But if we understand where God's work is being done the most powerfully, if we understand where God's government is being practiced properly, if we understand where there's not been rebellion, uh, show me where God condones rebellion. Show me where God condones voting and balloting. It's not there. So if we understand those things, then we will practice filio, philia, merited brotherly love towards one another, and merited love toward Christ. But we'll be blessed with something, won't we? We'll be about doing our Father's business, which is preaching the gospel. And the more we're about doing our Father's business... The more we're about preaching the gospel, the more we're dedicated and zealous about doing the work, the more we'll be protected from what we see in Proverbs 29:18, casting off restraint. It's interesting. Maybe I'm slow, but it's like a little mathematical equation, and I figured it out a few years ago, and I thought, that's interesting. There's a law there. And God expresses that law in the parable in Luke 12, expresses it elsewhere, expresses it in Proverbs 29, 18. But when we're focused on the work, one of the outcomes is to love each other, to not cast off restraint. 
And what is that work, brethren? Let's turn to Matthew 28. We know what the work is, but what is that work that we'll be about doing? Matthew 28, verse 19. What is the work that we'll be about doing if we love God? We love his commandments. We love his law. We love one another. What will we be doing? What will be our focus? Proverbs 28, verse 19. I'm sorry, Matthew. Matthew 28, verse 19. I'm sorry. Matthew 28, verse 19. Therefore, here's the commandment. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to cast off that terrible law, right? That's not what the Bible says. We know that. Teaching them to love, obey, internalize, inculcate, to live that law, to live by all those things Christ commanded, to live according to God's law, to love and keep the holy days, not to water them down, to love and honor and respect the Sabbath, not to water it down, to love and support the ministry, not to tear them down, to love and support our brothers and sisters, not to tear them down, to live the life that Christ led, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And if we do that, then lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. What can separate God's love from us? What can separate us from God's love? Can the end of the age separate us from God's love? No, no, it cannot. Can the first four seals separate us? Can the great false prophet separate us? Can persecution separate us? Can laws that restrict or make illegal Sabbath observance separate us from God's agape love, that unmerited love that he has for us, that contractual love, that has said love that was expressed in Psalm 165, that covenantal love that he has entered into with each of us who he's called and who have been baptized and have entered into that covenant with him. Can anything separate God from us and us from God? No, but one thing can. You see, if we don't do those things that Christ commanded, if we walk away from God, we can walk away from God. We can do that. We can separate ourselves. So the work of God, brethren, is one of the most profound expressions of godly love. Us participating in that work is one of the most profound expressions of being true Christians. I'd like to briefly look at one example from the Old Testament. Someone who we could do our own Bible study later. The person is Jonathan. And he really expressed love. Love for David. Love for his father, even. I'd like to take a break from these points. We've given these five biblical points. I'd like to discuss Jonathan very briefly. Maybe to give us some encouragement in how we can behave towards one another. An Old Testament example that we can take courage from. Let's turn to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. And then we'll reserve enough time to give five application points that we can hopefully apply in our lives to, to grow in love toward God and one another. 1 Samuel 17. A beautiful 
record of sincerity and sincere love? 1 Samuel 17, verse 58. Study, Jonathan, if you wonder how you can express love toward God and love toward others more. Study his, his life. It's a wonderful, wonderful example. 1 Samuel 17, let's begin in verse 58 at the very end of the chapter. This is where David and Jonathan first meet. David had just slain Goliath. Let's begin in 1 Samuel 17, verse 58. Saul said to him, whose son are you? So Saul, the king, calls in David and says, whose son are you, young man? David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And so it was when he had finished speaking, uh, when he finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan had Ahab toward David. Now, what had just transpired here? David had become the champion of Israel. He slayed Goliath. He was called into the king's tent, most likely. It was a big field tent. And here was Jonathan, the prince, the, the prince regent, the commander of the armies. That was the position that Jonathan had. He was the supreme commander of the armies of Israel under his dad, Saul. And so Jonathan, a noble prince, you know, he sees this young guy come in, the shepherd, son of a Bethlehemite. And David had won the day. Was Jonathan, was he jealous of David? See, Jonathan had a pure heart, pure heart. And so he listened to David talk to his father. David was humble. David was an intelligent young man, a capable man. And Jonathan saw that David was a noble person. And so he had Ahab for David, a merited love toward David. And so his soul was knit to David's soul from that point on. Verse 2, Saul took him that day, David, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Saul saw that David was a valuable asset. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him. And Jonathan does something very amazing. He gives his office to David. He grants David the generalship. He grants David com the command officer position over the armies of Israel. That's what this ceremony is right here. He didn't just give him his robe because it was a nice robe. This was a ceremonial robe that the prince of the armies of Israel wore. And so Jonathan and David made a covenant. Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war 
And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And Jonathan was never jealous, never became bitter. Let's turn to 1 Samuel 23. There's much more to the story. I'd love to spend time with it. But 1 Samuel 23, verse 15. Here's the final meeting between David and Jonathan. We saw the first meeting, and now we see the final meeting. A lot of water under the proverbial bridge between that first meeting and, and here. A lot had transpired. But Jonathan continued to love David, his friend. 1 Samuel 23, verse 15. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. The relationship had changed between Saul and David, but not between Jonathan and David. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in the forest. He was hiding. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. Jonathan was hopeful that David would make it out of this this situation. And he said, you shall be king over Israel. He encouraged David and I shall be next to you. I shall be next to you. Not over you. You know, I'm the son of the king, but I'll be next to you. And even my father, Saul, knows that. We don't have time for the rest of the story. You know, Jonathan's fate was not to be next to David. Perhaps in the kingdom of God, he will be one of David's close advisors. But we know that at the end of 1 Samuel 31, Saul's fate, the king of Israel, was to die. And Jonathan's fate was to die defending his father and his brothers. Greater love has no one than this, but to lay down one's life for his friends. We see that in the example of Jonathan. Do we practice that today? Do we practice that today? Mr. Weston wrote in the Living Church News, November, December 2012, the current issue. The article is titled, The Way of Give. And he, of course, wrote about Jesus Christ as the ultimate expression of laying down one's life for those whom he loves. We saw Jonathan do it. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, did it. Let's notice what Mr. Weston wrote. The wage we earn when we transgress God's law is death. But eternal life has been made possible because of God's free gift to us. Free gift. It's unmerited. Hased. Agape. We didn't earn it. We practice philia towards Christ. He deserves it. We practice philia hopefully towards each other, and hopefully we learn to grow in agape as well. Back to Mr. Weston's article. But eternal life has been made possible because of God's free gift to us, given when Jesus gave his life in our stead, John 3.16, Romans 6.23. God purchased us back from death by sacrificing Something far more valuable than silver or gold, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. And this was not a rash decision. It was all determined from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8. There is no, important me- there is no more important message 
in John 3.16 than this. No greater act of love is known to mankind. And that's true. Can we attain that level of love for one another? Love does not allow offense. Love does not allow division. Love does not tire out. Love does not become jealous. Love is not prideful. Can we express that love today? I believe in general we do. I believe in general we are. Five points, biblical points, we reviewed. Now let's conclude with four application points. Four application points that will help us to analyze ourselves. We won't spend as much time expounding on these points. But four application points. Are we giving? Love is giving. Let's turn to John 15, verse 13. Application points. Points where we can hopefully analyze ourselves. Love is giving. John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. John 15, 13. Love is giving. Do we give of our time? I've listed seven ways we can give. There are others. Our time. Do we give of our time? Or are we selfish with our time? Do we take time to say hello and visit with others? Do we take time for our family? Do we take time for God in prayer? Love is giving. Do we give of our time? Do we give of ourselves in prayer? Again, application points, self-analysis. Do we, do we spend quality time praying? Do we take time and give of our cheerfulness. What if we don't have cheerfulness to give? I'm pretty serious usually, and I'm trying to become more cheerful, so I'm working on that. I'm actually a nice person, I just am, you know, work oriented. But do we give of our cheerfulness? I need to work on that. Do we give of our smile? There's a lot of people I know that are always smiling, and it's so wonderful. They, they laugh easily, and it, it's a way to give. Do we give of our tithes? Do we give of our tithes? You know, we're commanded to give them, but do we give of them generously and, and, and thankfully and happily? What about hospitality? You know, it's connected to, to time, but what about hospitality? Are we hospitable? The sixth way we can give is service. You know, to, the church needs ushers. The church needs people to help put together uh, family weekend activities. The church needs people to help with the waiting room program. Do we offer our service? What about our service towards others? Do we know how to repair gutters? Is there somebody who's poor, maybe a widow or a widower, on a fixed income, whose gutters are leaking? Do we know how to do minor maintenance on a car? Can we serve each other in those ways? Do we give of our service? Do we give of our skills? 
related to service, but do we give of our skills? You know, I'm not a really skilled person, but I can just give of my time and my, my service. I can rake your leaves in your yard if you need them raked, but I can't repair your car engine. But for those of us who are blessed with those types of skills, do we give of our skills? Love is giving. Application point number two. Love is kind. Are we kind? 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. And verse 4. We'll just reference this one verse. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love suffers long. Love is patient, long-suffering. And is kind. Love is kind. Are we kind in our conversation? Are we kind in our conversation with our families? Are we kind in our conversation with our children? Are we kind in our conversations with our co-workers? Are we kind? Are we patient? Application point number three. Love is forgiving. Matthew 6, verse 14. Have you been offended? Matthew 6, verse 14. Forgive. Matthew 6, verse 14. Love is forgiving. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. And we can fool ourselves in this regard. We can fool ourselves. You know, well, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. That's a wrong attitude. God says that when he, remove, when he will remove our sins from us, he will forget them. See, God will forgive and forget. How far away does God remove our sins? As far as the what is from the what? As far as the east is from the west. He'll remember them no more. If we don't forgive others, God won't forgive us. Mark eleven twenty six makes that clear. If we don't forgive others, God will not forgive us. Love is forgiving. Fourth application point. Love keeps God's law. Yes, we covered this earlier. But brethren, we must keep God's law. Living by God's law is a demonstration of Philadelphian love and of Christian love. Restoring original Christianity. Dr. Meredith makes the following statement. He's writing about Christ living in us. He's writing about how a true, sincere Christian will have Christ living in them. And because of that, they will keep God's law. And here's what Dr. Meredith writes in Restoring Original Christianity. He writes the following. That very love of God flows down the riverbed of the Ten Commandments. That very love of God, God's love for us, it flows down the riverbed of the Ten Commandments. Very, you know, uh, uh, Creative, good imagery. It flows down the riverbed of God's law, the Ten Commandments. As Jesus' beloved apostle explains, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. 
That's from the Restoring Original Christianity booklet. Brethren, let's remember the first and greatest commandment. Let's remember that to love God is to keep his law, to be dedicated to have our hearts in the work, to forgive, to be giving, to be forgiving, to be kind. I'd like to conclude with John's words from 1 John chapter 4. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 4 in conclusion. John summarizes the topic better than I can. 1 John 4, verse 16. Let's remember the first and great commandment. Let's remember what it means to us, how we'll live our lives if we understand and apply the first and great commandment. 1 John 4 and verse 16. 1 John 4, verse 16. And we know and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us. In this, how has it been perfected? That we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. As he is, so are we. There is no fear, no fear of tribulation, of persecution, of famine, no fear of correction, no fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us.